Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris, and I gotta admit, I'm in the pinnacle of trout fishing right now. And I'm sitting back here, and it's hard to describe. I actually just saw a mullet flip to oh, give yeah, you an there's, idea. There's, there's lots of bait out in the bayou today. But this is Captain Bruce Ball, as you just heard, and then the infamous Mr. Paul Brown. Sir, <laughs> well, welcome to you. the Speckle Truth Podcast. <laughs> Priest to be here. <laughs> oh, my God. This is uh, an incredibly surreal moment for me. And so, like I told you before, though, I mean, I, I really can't say thanks enough for just kind of welcoming me into kind of your environment. I mean, we're surrounded here by bayous we're feeling a wind uh kind of blow through our hair and just kind of the aroma and scent of just being in the outdoors and being around inshore fishing you know so thank you sir you're quite welcome this is uh part of bruce's fault because i was in the city <laughs> and had to get out and he actually got me over here to this we call it paradise really i hear you yeah. no and, and and i appreciate captain bruce too as well for the invite to to come and kind of setting this up and kind of championing this uh for me a once in a life and once in a lifetime opportunity to to really look at both of you in the eyes and and talk not only trout fishing but just the legacy of trout fishing and, and the legacy that both of y'all have left uh in the trout fishing world that we hold so dear and so uh but i don't want to get too too far into it i want to actually uh, want to introduce Captain Bruce and, and, and sir, just go, if you, if you can, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, I uh, grew up uh, bass fishing on Toledo Bend Reservoir up uh, the north part of uh, the state, but uh, I uh, got away from bass fishing when I uh, got out of the, the Marine Corps in uh, early, uh, about mid-70s now, and uh, realized that uh, a trout would take a topwater lure, and then I was fascinated uh by the speckled trout and then i started off catching numbers just like probably everybody mm -hmm. and uh i threw bait back when i started and then being a bass fisherman i thought wow they would uh eat lures just like a bass would and yeah. so that's that's probably in 70 probably 72 mm -hmm. and then uh uh i guess uh Back in those days, the uh, the only kind of uh, bait that anybody threw was either uh, uh, a mirror lure or uh, a bingo or a, a soft plastic. But all the soft plastics were, uh, no matter what it was, it was called a tout, a boon tout oh, back boon in those tout. days. Everybody would throw a, whatever you threw. You caught them on a, either a tout or a mirror lure or a, or a Johnson Sprite. That was a spoon that we threw. Yes, sir. But anyway, that's kind of about how I got started. And then uh, eventually just uh, wanted to catch big trout. And that started probably, oh, right before Trout Master started in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. Now, before that, I, I waded the flats behind San Luis Pass and all the Galveston Bay and East Matagorda Bay and uh, never ventured too far from there until uh, Trout Masters. And then 
when Mickey Eastman started that, that trout circuit, uh, we started going from Galveston Bay all the way to uh, Baffin Bay and Port Mansfield. So I learned every uh, bay system from uh, Sabine to uh, Port Mansfield. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of my story. And it's it's a legacy for sure. I mean, in terms of just the, the duration of time, the people. I mean, we, we got a chance to fish together. And I mean, just talking about the people that you know, and and the, I think the impact and the relationships you've had across the various guides across the different coasts. But uh, before we get into that, because I kind of want to mold the two worlds, yours and Mr. Paul, because you guys are so close, uh, to and uh, and friends, right, and friendship. And so, but before we get into that, Mr. Paul, tell us a little bit about kind of your background, if you if you will, how you grew up, and things of that nature. Well, I grew up in Texas City and uh, eventually joined the Navy <clears throat> and then uh, went in as a machinist and came out a technician. Yeah. So my old man couldn't believe that one, so got a job with the FAA at Hobby Airport, Houston, mm-hmm. where I was a technician in the control tower. And along, uh, it was a name, man, Bill Norton was a controller. So that's how I got into heard that name fishing. <laughs> yeah, that's yes, how I got into fishing business. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, well, I was a shrimp fisherman, and okay. he had a bucktail that we fished with. Finally, he said, throw away the shrimp and let's get a bucktail. So like Bruce says, the only thing you could catch fish on was a boone tout tail. Tout tail. So having a shop, I decided, well, we're spending $5 a card. So I uh, clone a boone. And uh, we fished with those. We made six at a time, starting with. No kidding. So (laughs) as we're talking today, I mean, you were alluding to the relationship that Mr. Paul, because we were talking about it, and and Bill, Mr. Norton, right? And so Yes. I didn't know that that's how that started. And so were y'all both lure manufacturers or trying to just um, ate up with fishing? Well, he was he was the fisherman. I was just a tinkerer, see? Yeah. So I built the mold that... uh, out of ceramic that uh, had little shrimp tail legs, see. So I see. <clears throat> we fished with those because they uh, just improved, I thought, the uh, the boon tout tail. Right. And, and so give us a time frame. Like what, that's when, back in, uh, let's see, that would be 74. 74. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're out in the bay fishing commercially. You know, rod and reel okay. commercial, we're a dollar and a quarter a pound, make a little money, see. So we're out there, and here comes this great big guy in a whaler and his wife. And he comes alongside Bill's boat. His name is uh, Pete Tanner. And so I got to know Mr. Pete, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what he did, except he was in the machine shop doing something. So he, you know, uh, kind of like machines. So we got, we hit it off pretty good. So uh, I'd say. Yeah. yeah, so I got to fishing with Bill and Pete, and uh, one day, um, Mr. Uh, Pete knew I built kind of crude moles, and uh, uh, he says, uh, Brown, I'd like to see a longer shrimp. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I don't know. I says, I make these things out of uh, some ceramic mm-hmm. uh, nuts, and he said, well, I've got some plastic plates from the uh, Alaskan Pipeline project that we're doing and i'll cut you out some plates and you can whittle these out and see what you can build so that's how we got the long shrimp oh damn 
because of Mr. Tanner. <laughs> so that's amazing. So now the the corky. So how did how did that come about? How did the cork? So it started well, with shrimp, and then how well, did that... okay. Then we're we're making the shrimp, see, and we're just cornered the market market on the large shrimp, uh-huh. and all of a sudden we know that Kelly Wiggler's got a long shrimp. Well, that's Uh-oh. I got introduced to the business. I knew how business. Pat, Pat in this, Kelly back yeah, in those days. yeah. I knew how the yeah. the fish and lure business worked. After that, uh-huh. <laughs> he, uh, Mister. Uh, uh, anyway, he invented the long shrimp. Copy. And so I said, okay. They, uh, we made a mullet. We made, and then they uh, another company made those. So I said, finally, I said, well, everybody's copies are just like the automobile industry. So. One day we're at a fish fry, which I've met another young man called Bubba Silver, which was American Hat Company man. Mm-hmm. And I got to fish with him, too. And so um, fish fry, his boy uh, uh, wanted a Zorro spook plastic bait because he had the theory that a fish actually sensed that it was hard plastic and they'd turn away. And a soft plastic, they would come back and grab it, see. So that's where the theory started. I'll be damned. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, uh, let me just see what I can do here and just yeah, create so, a mold. Or, know, how, yeah. So how did that mold process work? I mean, well, you, you, I guess you learn by mistakes. And mm-hmm. so after making a few by hand, then I got to whittling. <clears throat> all my base were whittled by wood. Uh, make a wood mm-hmm. carbon, and then I cast that. And then eventually I met. Uh, I was pouring all these by by hand, mm-hmm. and then we got another fisherman that I met on the bay is uh, uh, Bob Hardy. He yeah. says, "Hey, you know anything about this microwave and this stuff?" I said, "You know, not wanting to know everything about." It. I said, oh yeah, Bob, what about that? And he said, he showed me how the uh, microwave was, and I kind of knew that from the factory that we bought our um, the supplier that they were doing it with microwaves, so. We started microwaving our plastic, where we, and then we could. I made uh, duplicates where we had a hundred shrimp tail at a pot. Mm-hmm. So we made a hundred at a pour. Wow! So, so yeah, I mean that's manufacturing. Yeah, that's at that point. and now yeah. we're in the manufacturing. Yeah. Right, right. That's crazy. So, all right. So the corky. What? So when was the corky of it like originally created? I think probably. Shoot, I'm not sure. Probably in. Probably sixty, starting of it. Okay, sixty something. Do you still have like the original corky, like your the first one you ever poured? Um, I've always wanted mm, to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think it's probably in uh, Houston. Oh, okay. it's in that shop somewhere. <laughs> Steve has that. Yeah, now. Steve has most of the stuff. That's now. so cool. But That's he uh, <clears throat> he's more the artist. Mm-hmm. He can design more colors than I ever thought about. I, at first, I said, no, nah, you need 10 colors to be in the business. Now, he's got probably 110. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. No, he, he does have quite a few. All right, so that's during that time frame. So how did how did Jaws Worlds link up? Actually, how I met up with Paul, I was waiting the pins in Galveston Bay one day, and there was a gentleman that was out there wade fishing next to me, and he was catching them every cast, and nobody else was. I looked over there at his boat, and he had a Boston whaler that had a bunch of stickers on the side of it. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? And then I 
then I realized that that was probably one of the, uh, there used to be a tournament years ago on the Galveston Bay system called the Marburgers tournament. And, uh, well, anyway, come to find out, I walked over closer and it was Bubba Silver. Yeah. And Bubba was throwing those shrimp tails <laughs> with the legs on them. And I walked over and he said, well, that was a long time ago. He said, young man, come over here. <laughs> so I tell you how long ago, I'm 66 now. So anyway, I walked over to, to Bubba and he showed me a shrimp tail that had legs on it. And I said, where do you get those at? And he said, well, Mr. Brown makes them. Told me where he lived. And so, uh, that's about the same time I guess Bob was over there yeah. with you, and he made that that big shrimp tail and kind of got in trouble. I don't. Maybe oh I yeah, that's, that. another, that's another. That's another, another story. story. Yeah, that's but, another one but, of them. But, hey, if you want to share it, come on. But uh, but anyway, uh, Bubba turned me on to that to that uh, shrimp tail with the legs on it, and so I I guess I went over there and and, and at, I guess that time I got them from Paul's house over off of Fuquay, and then I think uh, uh, Mike Carlisle started carrying them over at Pine Plaza. Yeah. Through uh, Bob Hardy, of course, we'll go back to the, his wade fishing. The guy he w- waded up to had won that boat with one of the shrimp tails. He sure did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he won the trout master. One of the first, I think was the first one, wasn't it? I think it was one, the first one. He first caught that one. in that uh, uh, lady's pass on Hannah's. Yes. Yeah. And I'm so, you know, I was. Big fish. How big was it? I want to say it was close to nine pounds. Yeah, I've got. Hey, Steve's got the picture over there, and it's got all the data underneath it. Unreal. But see, I was kind of blessed from somewheres because all these people, like Pete Tanner, Bubba Silver, these are two multimillionaires, which I did not know. Because on the bay, you don't, you know, they're just fishermen, fishermen yeah. good fishermen, and that's what I liked about it. So here's Bob Hardy that knows. Um, I think. Pete Tanner and Bob were pretty good close friends, mm-hmm. fishermen. So one day, old um, Bob comes by and says, "Hey, I want you to come down to this uh, tackle place in uh, in Dickinson." I, I said, "Wait a minute, there ain't no tackle place in Dickinson. I, I got a mother in Texas City. I go there mm-hmm. every week, just about it." And he said, "Where is it?" He said, "I'll take you there." So sure enough, behind a little um, chicken place is a strip center with uh, Pine Plaza. Yeah. And so I meet uh, Mike Carlisle, and he's the guy you should be interviewing because Mike had a shop that he didn't care who you were. If you like fishing or fishing, you could come in the back. We had a cooler, and whoever made any money that week got the case of beer, and we sought talk fishing. Yes, sir. And that's where I learned how to interpretate all these not heads on the bay what they were talking about the colors and what they wanted and i said i just sit back drink my beer and try to be quiet which i never do but uh, i learned a lot in mike's place and that was education and that's the thing that i hate that we're seeing now is there's no mom and pop tackle houses because that's the people where you learn things about fishing I think that's where you yep. learn how to keep a, a corky from rolling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah that thing. was yep. – uh, yeah. yeah, the first one was a disaster. I brought it in, and uh, I gave it to Hardy and his fishing partner, and they took it out, and they come back and slammed it on Mike's table said, don't ever give me any more of this um, SOB thing. Yeah. And so I said, hmm, what's wrong? He said, you ought to see my line. <laughs> and no, it yeah. looks like a spring, so <laughs> I went – Okay. Back to the shop, and I'm trying to figure this thing out and go down to a, a 
tackle place, and this one guy says, well, make it a diver. And being in the Navy, I decided, you know, subs usually have a fan mm-hmm. on the back, so that's where we put the fins. And then I take it to the causeway with Mr. Tanner, and being a ace fisherman like Bruce, he tunes it in. We play with copper wire. We do bins and all this, and finally we got a fishing lure. I'll be damned. But it isn't overnight, you know. This no. happened. So how long was Many that process? Yeah. That probably two to three years of misery. Yeah. And then you get all the different parts together. Mm-hmm. But two to three years of misery, and and I share with, I shared this with you before the uh, the podcast, just talking is that two to three years of misery, and you've created arguably the best trout fishing lure well, uh, have in to, the industry. I'll have to stop you there because I'm the mixing bowl. If I had to sit down and tell you each fisherman that gave me a little bit of data, see, I was told at first, he says, uh, most tackle places that built any kind of bait, you could not get by this front office. You never got in the back where they were doing the work because they're going to swipe your ideas, see. But everybody was welcome. And I told this one guy that told me this story. I said, let me tell you something. I says, they may get a label off of a can or something, but I'm getting more data from them than they know. So these people actually made the lure. That's why I call it a Texas lure, because the Texas fishermen actually built the lure. And it's, it's insane because there's a tremendous amount of loyalty in Texas to the Corky. I mean, well, it's their lure. I know yeah. for sure, but yeah. uh, but it, there again, though, like there's this in, insane sense of loyalty to the lure, and I know it's it's made by them, and and maybe that ex, to me that explains a lot. I mean, again, I'm from Southeast Louisiana, and uh, so Bruce, you you were going to say something? Well, I was just going to say that, uh, like Paul was saying, Paul uh, you know, kept his ears open. He listened to everybody on the bay. If they told him the lure needed this or it needed that. And then, uh, you know, the, the first, the original corkies uh, were built with a piece of cork. That's why they call them corkies. Well, later on, they, the, the lure you just picked up, that's a, has a different insert in it, but it's still, still a corky. But uh, uh, everybody learned a, a way to tune their lure. Everybody would uh, uh, either put a piece of solder in it or a mm-hmm. nail or... Uh, just a just a different uh, bending and bending. Oh yeah, yeah they come in and look like I said. What, yeah. what happened bend to you, Corky? He said that's the way you do it. You yes. bend the head down, the tail up, and it goes. I said, well, yes. whatever. And everybody <laughs> yeah. had their own way of tuning. <laughs> yeah, right. I've seen them bend them all different <laughs> yeah. ways and put different weights on them. And I know the guys down south, you know, where they catch them skinny, they would uh, like the floaters, and they would uh, uh, not put any weights on them. Then if you'd go say further back to, to this direction where the water's a little deeper you'd want it to, to sink more so then you'd put even the uh, paul makes these uh solder rings that he puts on to make them sink a little bit faster and i know the Bashi brothers down there they would uh i think they were putting the nails in them are they still yeah do? they're still they like the nails you know? yeah they put the nails and they catch a lot of big fish used to be on the uh on the super devil that, that steve still has and now i think they're using aren't they throwing your bug eye now more yeah, they. Um, that was the last one, but uh, different people would come in and they said, you know, we got these shed out there. You ought to make a shed bait. So that's 
the we call it the fat boy fat back boy. there yeah. and so that was supposed to re- resemble that uh, the bigger bait mm-hmm. and uh, that's you know you get it from different people i don't even remember um <clears throat> who brought that idea but it came in the door one time or another and there's a guy that uh, <clears throat> actually is the father of the rattle <clears throat> is uh, mark holt he, I'll tell you this sea story. He's uh, one of the better fishermen also, and he's uh, caught a lot. If you've seen his pictures up there, he's in the 10, 12, and he wins all these tournaments with his carcass, see? Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> he was out fishing with his dog, which is actually a hunting dog. He said that he'll go fishing, but he really don't like fishing. He likes hunting. So the dog's sleeping in the front, and he's fishing in the evening. And he says, I put this Zoom rattle in the back of a fat boy. And I'm popping it. The dog jumps up, looks over the side of the boat because they hear so well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he come by one evening after work. He said, Brown, I got an idea. <clears throat> so I said, what's this, uh, Mark? He said, well, I'm going to tell you this sea story. And he told me about the dog. He uh-huh. said, that keen little click has uh, got something to it. So now we're in the putting rattles in all the baits see so it just kind of that's why the texas people say it's their bait because they actually have uh got so much Such influence yeah. oh yeah a lot of influence. and so you had so the original right and then right. you had the now this is the fast sink yes then you had well, the that's, flo- that's the fat boy yeah yeah fat boy yeah. fast sink and then yeah. fat boy floater and yeah. then the original fat right. boy and so and i mean the, how many <clears throat> how many different variations of the corky well do? actually there's a uh <clears throat> not counting the ones that we built from Miralore, <clears throat> Steve has still got the uh, Super Karki, which is a jumping, Mark Hogue calls it a jumping mena Karki. It's a jumping Karki, he calls it, because it's like a jumping mena. Hmm. Then we have the Big Devil, and I sold the Little Devil. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got the Broken Back, which Bruce is actually the guy that... Uh, Another sea story. <laughs> yeah, this story. guy, this, yeah, uh, this story is pretty bad because yeah. I'm out of the business now. I am through making lures. I've got all kind of lures. See, so uh, uh, what was the guy? Uh, that was Larry Gertis. Larry, Larry Gertis is uh, he's he's one of these poor guys that only owns about five car things in Galveston. So uh, <clears throat> he comes by. They're all they're all equal with us when they get in the shop. You know, yes, there is no multimillionaires in my shop or Bruce's shop. Say so, there he's sitting there one day and he said, "Brown, got a got an idea for you." He said, "What is that?" He said, "Bruce has sent this over here. It's a, a knockoff of the Carkey slash had a wiggling tail on it, a broken back." See. Call it rubber back. Rubber or back. Yeah. That was uh, uh, Randy Hooper's yeah, yeah. idea. They got permission from you yeah. to use it because you were already out of business back then. Yeah. Anyway, I don't need another bait because <laughs> I'm going <clears> to <throat> slow down this process. See, so about the third trip, <clears throat> he just talks me into doing it. Okay, let me see what we do. Bruce, help you tune it. See, because uh, I have to have people that know how to fish because I'm not. One of the ace fishmen. That's a gift from upstairs, see, which I didn't get too much of it. I got a little, but not enough. I got the won't, but I ain't got the. But anyway, <clears throat> so I diddle with this thing, and then I'm, I bring them over here to get Bruce to play with them and sell a few where we can keep this process mm-hmm. going. 
and my wife can go to the casino, see? So that's how we got to coming over to Louisiana. <laughs> so finally we get a uh, broken back. Yes, sir. Yep. And it was deadly. It still is yeah, to this it's day. still going, I mean, yeah. You, you threw it today. Oh, yeah. I, but, I threw it today. I used to throw it almost the only thing I would throw during the cold weather months, especially dead of winter. The big fish would eat it. They still do. And, I mean, people – at least initially when Steve was selling them not too, too long. I mean, I know he still sells them, but yeah. I, I guess when he was kind of rolling them out, I mean, there were a lot of people that were looking for him and he could just yeah. couldn't produce them fast enough. Right. Yeah. He's a one man shop. He's got a helper now, but, uh, it is a long process cause, um, <clears throat> excuse me. That's why Miralure did not want it. It's like making two baits. Hmm. That's what they told me. They said they didn't want anything to do with it. I'd be darned. Now I heard a story about the, uh, holder fishing show about um, a bunch of brokebacks. It actually uh, involves the brokeback and basically making enough of them. And at the holder fishing show, people were lined up. And when Captain Bruce Boss showed up, yeah. it was, uh, oh, it was pandemonium. It was, oh, uh, when we sent them a, over, yeah, big zoo. I mean, people were lined up halfway around the holder show and uh, fighting over them. And it, th- we sold out. Uh, probably the first hour, they're all gone. I'd be damned. Paul couldn't make them fast enough. Yeah. So, what also another thing I didn't know, and uh, Captain Bruce was talking about it uh, today, was that uh, I didn't realize you had you had fished so much of the Texas coast. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, we started with uh, <clears throat> excuse me with Bill, and uh, we were trying to make a little money. <clears throat> so I made the shrimp tail. Mm-hmm. And he'd had a place that he bought in uh, Port Mansfield. Okay. <clears throat> and so he'd uh, call me up and say, hey, can you get off work? He was retired then. And make me whatever color was hot. And so I'd go in the shop, hand pouring then, and we'd make all these shrimp tails. And I'd get on Southwest Airline to Harlington Holland, yeah. with a big bag of these shrimp. <laughs> And here comes Bill. He would uh, not shake your hand. He uh, let me see what's brought. And so he, after he saw the right shrimp tail, we'll shake my hand. We'd go to the camp. And back in those days, you can see the picture of uh, Mr. Snell's catch. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we actually caught a lot of fish with the shrimp. I caught an 11-pounder on a shrimp tail and sold it for a dollar and a quarter of a pound. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> I couldn't take it home on the plane, and oh. I didn't have any money to make a taxidermist. So, so give us give us an idea. Like, what what time frame was that? That was in the <clears> – that was 70s in uh, part of the 60s, I think. What we was it like it. fishing down in Mansfield then? <clears throat> well, it was uh, how many did you want to catch? I heard Flip Pallet say one time it was, uh, it's not whether or not it's going to be a good day. It's what are we going to do with this good day? Yes. You know, there was just so many fish. He was describing basically Biscayne Bay in Miami, you know, and, and he was talking about that. And I think that was a, a phenomenal analogy, at least from what I've heard about yeah. stories of of the lower Laguna Madre. And It was like that. And if we'd have had uh, like a carkey that would suspend, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you had to have a good um, photo glasses to see the potholes mm-hmm. and if you could catch to the dark and bring it in to the light section and let it drop you usually had a fish and it depends on how big of a fish yeah were y'all wade fishing then uh no we most uh well we did some but most was uh drift fishing no kidding no now bruce you're in your guiding operation now you're you're 100 percent weight only 100 percent in big lake 
and Sabine or, or kind of both or just uh, and so talk to us it about it all depended on uh, where the fish were at and where the big ones were now the big ones back uh, I'd say around uh, 2000 to 2002 the fishing here on Big Lake and Sabine were both off the charts it was unbelievable now I do remember a time period uh, when uh, uh, Trout Masters first started we uh, started coming this direction and we went to Sabine and everybody said, Hey, you cannot wade Sabine. It's too muddy. Well, we all went over there and started looking around. Well, sure. There was, there's some places you can't wade. It's kind of like a uh, big lake, but there's a lot of places you could wade if you knew where to go and you had the time to look. Mm-hmm. And uh matter of fact, there was some, uh, when we first got down there, there were some places in the channel where the LNG uh, plants are now, where you used to be able to only wade if you wore neoprene. Back then, uh, you know, we didn't have breathable waders, so we had neoprene waders, and we had to wear those waders even during the warm months mm. because you'd sink through the the uh, the oyster beds that line Lighthouse Cove. And, and I don't know how many times I would get up on that reef and uh, and sink through the mud, but the uh, the neoprene kept you from getting cut up. And, uh, you know, a few years later, the, it changed. Now you can wade that without, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the mud's gone. I guess that's from, from the tide movement. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how, how the bay floor changes over the years just from, uh, you know, the tide moving in and out and, uh, you know, the oyster reefs, and they come and go. And now we've got all the, the uh, dredging mm-hmm. that took place, uh, not at Sabine, but here that yeah. kind of, messed up our fishery now everybody's wanting to know hey what's what's going on with uh sabine what's going on with uh lake cockshoe what happened to all your big fish what happened to all your fish the big numbers we used to catch i do remember there was a time period on big lake when you could come down now i don't work birds but you could work birds back i'd say uh in the mid 90s Mm -hmm. uh to 2000 2004 and actually catch four and five pound fish under the birds and it, it was it was awesome. You could go out in the middle yeah. during the heat of the summer and throw topwaters out in the middle and catch six to seven, eight pounders out in the middle of nowhere in seven, eight foot of water on topwaters under big, big rafts of pogies. And uh, I didn't do that a whole lot, but uh, it could be done. And then our shorelines were, were unbelievable. I mean, there's some days here that uh, – Sometimes I don't even mention them because everybody thinks I'm telling a lie. <laughs> yeah, because it used to be so good. I bet it, so, it, it did. So y'all have fished together a lot, right? Is that? Oh yeah, I would imagine. Well, he fishes. I wade behind. Him. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about y'all's most memorable trip, if you can. Okay, my most I, memorable trip. And I'm interested to hear this. Okay, yeah. probably the day that uh, I think it was you and I and Bob Hardy. Now, we went uh, in Black Lake, and Mr. Brown, we went to the uh, the back north end of Black Lake, and I think we caught some four or five pounders, and then we come around to the to the outside edge of the Black Lake, Black Lake where everybody used to say uh, you couldn't wade Black Lake. Now, a lot of it you can't, but this one particular place you could, and I think you caught a uh, eight, maybe eight and a half, and then right after that, you caught one that was almost nine. And that I, was a lucky trip. Uh, that's what he <laughs> we said. We actually found that place from a little old boat that kept 
going back and forth in this little old square cut-out mm-hmm. pond. Oh, yeah. And we, we said, got to be something back there. This guy's been there about four or five times. And so Bruce wades anywheres, and <laughs> I try. I can't anymore, but we go in the back, and it's pretty muddy back there. But okay, I remember that day. That's, that was a different day, there. but I remember that day, yeah. too. They are stacked in there. He catches the trout. I catch all the big reds, see. That's how that works for some odd reason. <laughs> but the day he's talking about, he did set me on a rock uh, bottom because <laughs> uh-huh. I can't wade mud. And, uh, of course, they go out in the mud and mm-hmm. look for the big fish. But um, Hardy's down from me, but he put me on the lucky spot <laughs> outside the, of the mud. Yeah, bunch. that's probably 30 minutes yep. apart that you caught those two yep. big fish. Is that, that the awesome two biggest fish. fish you caught in a day, or which? Yeah, about? I, I caught a, I caught one in a boat down. Um, what's that reef we used to wade right uh, on this end? Oh, uh, that was on uh, oh by Turner's Island. Yeah, by Turner's. Yeah, Turner's Island. I was with a friend of mine that caught a pretty mm-hmm. good sized fish in the boat with a carkey, but uh, I'm, <clears throat> I wasn't here when the big cast was going on. I heard about it because. We had one was a, I won't. They had a slang name which we won't tell you, but it was a super fat. We call it. It it was just like a devil, and mm-hmm. it was real fat. I still make them, or Steve does. Oh yes, the one that <clears throat> uh, James Plog likes. Yeah, and that sucker, they, this young fella would come over here by the shop, and he'd say, "I'm going to Cockershoe. What? I gotta have me so many of these big pearl ones with chartreuse tail, but it's a big old." Uh, bait and that's what to catch and you'll see the pictures over there they're 10 pounders and he'd come back with all these great big trout pictures i'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors as you know we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout as well as our conservation fortunately for us mirror lore texas custom lures and the original custom corky support that same passion which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. And so for folks listening, uh, I'm remarkably fortunate to be here and literally walking in the shop, and I understand that there are not a lot of pictures left because they've all been given to Steve. Yes, um, but the pictures that are in there are just really unfathomable. I mean, just the amount of big fish and, and one up there is, is, uh, Jim Wallace. Yes. And so yeah. y'all were kind of alluding to it and I kind of shut you down cause I wanted everybody else to hear this, but, but tell me about the day that Jim Wallace broke the state record, Mike Blackwood's state record. Well, Jim is another one of these, uh, <clears throat> fishermen to come by the shop and, He's a little rough on the outside, but he's one of the best hardcore fishermen I've ever been with. I've only fished with him probably three times, and you better want to go fishing because he'll fish all night if he wants to. Mm-hmm. It, and Chad Petterick actually just shared that or a story of Jim Wallace basically pitching a camp or pitching a tent in his boat yep. in the like, middle of winter to go f- basically catch a midnight major um, somewhere in a Baffin complex. He would do the same thing at St. Mary's in East Matagorda Bay, yeah. and he'd come here in uh, the Duck Camp Cove and spend the night here several nights back, you know, when it was really good here. Well, Jim, 
being a fisherman, found out about the carky on the bay. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he comes by the shop, and we get to be friends. And he's in the uh, uh, seller's uh, food market. He did all their overhauls, their modernization, all their woodwork. And, um, you know, when they did a new job on the inside, he would do it. Work nights. See? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um, he helped me a lot. Anytime I needed a part, like uh, you'll see some of the bread racks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim sl- supplied all that for us. That's cool. And, um, and then, um, of course, he goes out <clears throat> the first time to Baffin. And uh, who's the big guy down there? Uh, uh, Cliff Webb. Cliff yeah, Webb. Yeah, they Cliff, hire yeah. Cliff, Cliff. And Cliff shows them some places. And then uh, uh, I think uh, one of the cellar boys was with him. And he went home early, and, of course, they banged the fish. So the next time they go, they go by themselves, and then they hit the mother load. This uh, Ronnie Sellers catches 10 fish. <laughs> then I have a picture over there you'll see of all 10-pound trips oh my God. are better. And they really dirty-mouthed him in the papers because, uh, you know, who would kill that many fish? But I said, there's not a fisherman that's ever been in my shop that would not have bagged 10-pound 10, 10 fish. I says, I want him to come up because there is none, because I, I, I would be guilty as everybody, you know. Sure. Jim told me that, that story about that, that morning at Cathead. Maybe I shouldn't even said Cathead. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were at Cathead, and they were coming, coming in there, and uh, – uh, it was a foggy, foggy morning. Jim was on the 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 bow of the boat. Ronnie Sellers was driving. It was a third third guy. I can't remember who that was. But anyway, they were pulling in there, and uh, they somebody said that's a, a bunch of mullets spooking out here, or big redfish. And Jim said those are not redfish, and they're not mullet. These are big trout. I I can see them. He said they're big, big trout in the fog. And so they went up there and jumped out, and then uh, Jim was throwing a, a glow. Was it a glow? Uh, yeah, it was corky. the old glow sparkle, we call it. Yeah. The carky. I think yeah. uh, somebody, I think Chad <laughs> uh, had mentioned he used to call it the pickle. Is that right? No, no, no. They probably oh, looked like a pickle. They had their own names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. and, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, uh, he told me the, the morning about uh, catching that, that big fish and how he fought it, and that uh, Ronnie Ashley had some longer trout hmm. it was they were longer than jim's but jim caught lucky and caught the fat one but uh and so how long was that fish i can't remember it was 33 and a eight yeah maybe? i think Something so like it's, that. it's written yeah, the, it's, yeah, yeah it's written it's up, up there. there i think it was near 33 inches yes. i remember it was that 13 11 yeah yes it was oh, 13 yeah. 13 something this yeah, is a big old trout 13, 11, I, I, yeah. he got it mounted but by, by John Glenn, and he's got it in a. Uh, who has that fish now? Uh, do I do not know. I think Jim Lavelle might have it. Oh yeah, he might. Yeah. Or, or I don't know. Steve if has got uh, Steve's one got. in his shop that he had mounted. So so he broke the state record, Mr. Yes. Blackwood's state record. Right. Yep. How did you find out? Well, That's another story. A, <laughs> Can you share that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, at work in Vegas. <laughs> at work, I know and I works. got got home off the off the plane, and I look at my truck under the carport, and there's a newspaper clipping, and I look in there. One of my friends that uh, work with at the FAA had cut this out, put underneath my uh, 
uh, windshield wipers is Carkey wins state record. I said, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And that's when the sales yeah. really took off. Yeah. Then, then the, yeah, the father of the Carkey now, Mr. Jim. Jim, yeah. yeah. That's, so uh, talking about that, right? And so Jim Wallace, kind of like a garage rat to some extent and, and buying Corkies and things of that nature. Uh, were you, obviously, you were in a garage, but do you remember folks, like customers that came through? I mean, do you remember the folks that came through your garage? I mean, I, I have people that yes. I've kind of just met and are like, oh, you're going to talk to Mr. Paul? I was like, I remember going by Bates out of his garage. Yes, there, so it seems like really, all of Texas came to your garage. There is really too many of them. Because we did have the fire department come quite often with the truck. Not this one, but uh, another bunch. They were right around the corner. They were always uh, out for their groceries, and they'd stop by to see if I was doing anything interesting. And uh, they'd stop by, and I had the police department, which is uh, I have a good friend that uh, they'd stop by. So we had a lot of customers. I bet. And so, like, I I can't – I didn't – I guess, unfortunately, I never never got a chance to see it. And so you were kind of explaining a little bit in terms of, like, the wall of baits and things of that well, nature. Well, so. actually, it was a double-car garage, and I okay. built a breezeway in between. <clears throat> I built the garage first to make enough room where I could take the old garage and make a den out of it for the kids because it kept running in front of the television. So I had to add on a garage mm-hmm. to put my shop in. And then I added a breezeway in between, and that was where our kind of office stuff, and we had our T-shirts and hats, and mm-hmm. everybody that had a business would bring me their hat. We'd trade hats, and up above was all their hats. I no, got a whole cool. bunch of them up there. So we got we got fire department, we got, uh, you name it, uh, hats from all over, and we traded for a khaki hat. That's cool. So, I mean, just... How many people were coming in and out of the garage per day? I mean, I, per day? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying I like, don't know. We, you know, but there were a lot be, of people. Uh, well, sometimes my wife would say, "You can't come in now. You have to stay out here because we got a garage full, especially at noon." Really? <clears throat> but the worst uh, story I have to tell you is this one. This guy calls me up, kind of late. I says, uh, "Said Brian, you you mind if I come by?" I said, "No, nah, come on." pretty good customer no names but he says uh i need to come by and get some carkies sorry come on so he gets a whole bunch of them on the table he says wow that's a whole bunch buddy he said yeah i gotta get these before i tell my wife i lost my job oh my <laughs> so <he's> got, <laughs> <laughs> really priorities <laughs> yeah he had his priorities straight that's awesome oh, yeah. that's funny that's awesome uh-huh. so captain bruce i mean uh-huh. tell us uh obviously the lineage with you and here fishing big lake and the insane amount of big fish i was getting a chance to listen to some of those big fish stories uh particularly one we fished in area today that uh you shared but yeah tell us about one of your most memorable big fish and big fish stories uh let me think there's been so many but uh one in particular it was no no real big big fish but this was during uh the week before the houston boat show mm-hmm it was real, real freezing cold. Nobody was on the water. Nobody. The only other boat we saw was a, a crabber running crab traps. It was me, Benny Hatton, used to be on the uh, outdoor show with Mickey Eastman, and another guy out of the Galveston Bay Complex, uh, Captain Bob Leonard. 
Well, we we were on the north uh, shoreline of Big Lake, and we pulled pulled into the shoreline, and and we all jumped out, and Bob. He probably regrets this to this day. He had a leak in his waders, and the water was super, super cold, so he didn't last long before he had to get back out in the, the boat. And he went out there by the crab trap line and watched us as we sat in one spot. And I am not, I am not kidding. We took, we stood in one spot, never moved, and we threw, uh, we throwing pearl chartreuse back, fat boy corkies, and you could not get them in the water and pick your rod tip up before they were coming out of the water, just shaking their heads, blowing the holes in the water. And they were doing this so quick. I would look at Benny and he would look at me and we both set our hook and, and say, is that me or is that you? And we wait to see who bows up because they were that thick. And I'm talking, it was not every other cast. It was every cast, every single cast that you throw out there before you could lift your rod tip up, they were up, and it was misting rain. It was freezing cold, and they were on top of a hump of shell that's no longer there. But that place to this day is still good. And I think we had uh, probably four over eight pounds, and two of them I think we hooked deep, and we had to pull their gills out. And Bob actually took those two fish uh, to the Houston Boat Show, and he didn't lie. He said these were caught way to the east. And had them on ice because they died, and 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 everybody came by and looked at them. They just kind of figured he was in East Bay somewhere, but he was way to the east. He was over in Louisiana. But we caught all those big, big fish, and I I don't know how many we caught. We didn't keep anything. We just catching them and letting them go. And that's probably uh, uh, the most memorable trip, other than another day that actually Benny was with me on this day too. This was uh, May uh, the third, two thousand. And two, it was like 8.20 in the morning. It was me, uh, Captain Benny Hatton, and Steve Williams, who's a dentist uh, on the west side of Houston. Well, at that time, I was in the Houston Fire Department. We came down one morning, and we launched over at the, the ferry and went to a cove on the south end. And we pulled up in there, and uh, right after daylight, from April of that same year, we were catching just an unbelievable amount of seven-pound class fish. I mean, there was hardly anything under five in there, but most of them were seven to eight-pounders. Well, that particular morning, I walked in there, got to a point, and I threw a, a, a fat boy super spook right up on the shoreline, and it almost went in the bushes, and I thumbed it, and it fell probably two inches from the bank. I picked my rod tip up, and a big fish ate it, and I seen the fish come out of the water, the whole back of the fish, and, and she ran out towards the deeper water. And Benny right off the bat told me, that is a, uh, a redfish. And I said, I saw her back. She came out of the water. It's a trout. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a good trout, but I had no idea that it was that big until I got in close. And then when I saw her, I just followed her around with a, with a light drag and, until she came up on her side. Back in those days, we had no bogus. And there's no way I could put my hand across her back, and uh, she ended up being, uh, the next day, uh, I had to go to the fire station, and I went to Kroger's, and I put her on a scale in the meat market, and she weighed 10.86 pounds. Mm. That's the biggest trout I've caught on Big Lake. No kidding. Is that the biggest fish, though, Captain Bruce? That's the fattest fish. I caught a longer one where we fish today. Oh, yeah. no kidding. A little bit longer, but she wasn't near the, she, she was like almost 32 inches, but she didn't 
She didn't have the girth, huh? No, no she still weighed a little over 10, but she <laughs> yeah. wasn't like that. I mean, the that fish, That's crazy. we laid in the bottom of the, the old Kenner boat, and we just sat there and stared at it, thinking it, it, it didn't look right because she had that big girth. And I thought she must have a mullet, but come to find out uh, Howard Hansen and, uh, and Houston mounted it, and I talked to him later, and he said that uh, it had an egg sac uh, that looked like it belonged in a striped bass. It said the biggest egg sac I'd ever seen in a trout, and, and it's uh, over my fireplace. And that's a that's a monster. No, it, it was a it was a pig. <laughs> oh my god! Would you rather catch a thirty inch trout or a ten pound fish? That's a good question. No, it's a, that's a good question. Or both. <laughs> uh, I'm tell you what, it's a ten pound fish is what uh, a ten pound fish is what everybody strives for. Now, thirty incher. Now you, I've caught some thirty inchers that don't weigh uh, eight, eight pounds. pounds. Yeah, I know. And a lot of people have got thirty inchers that don't weigh uh eight pounds especially if you catch them after the full moon in may because after a full moon in may most of them will spawn out and then you'll catch a, a 30 inch fish i caught one one time that was 30 inches and weighed seven and a half pounds so to answer your question i'd much rather catch a 29 and a half inch fish that weighs 10 pounds than a uh a 30 inch fish that weighs six and a half or seven mm-hmm. pounds and i've seen them they look almost like eels when they're that 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 but that's that's, that's a pretty good question how about you, Mr. Paul? <clears throat> May I just go for numbers? <laughs> <laughs> just eight fish. That's yeah, awesome. Right. So actually, uh, you know, kind of alluding to that, though, like what do you know what the biggest fish ever caught on a corky or was Jim Wallace's the biggest fish ever caught in a Probably, corky? Probably was. was yeah. Do you remember any other notable fish that people have shared with you that are like kind of resonate with you? I, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, most of the fish that were brought in were the pictures. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll let you uh, get all that data out of Steve because I can't remember all the guys. I don't yeah. want to say one and not the other one I because hear there's probably 15 or better big fish in that uh, alums we got over there. That's crazy. Yeah. It's been caught on them. If people say, like, it's the hardest bait to throw, I mean, were you, were you able to throw it, like, right when you started fishing it? Captain Bruce, or oh, was it yes. something you had? I call it driving a bait. And yeah. so when I was learning how to fish a corky, I called it driving a bait because it was like literally getting a driver's license. You had to like learn how to oh, yeah. how, how to yeah. fish it. But then once you did, it's like second nature. And then it becomes a, a valuable tool of like getting you to work every day, right? It, it becomes that tool in the toolbox. And so that's my analogy in terms of it, you got to drive the bait. And so that's how correct. about you? That's well. I found out. I've had lots of people ask me over the years. How do you just? How do you work a corgi? How do you work a broken back? How How do you work your bug eyes? How do you How do you work your peanuts? What do you do? Basically, everybody uh, works them a little bit different. I've seen people work them fast. I've seen people work them slow. I've had people say in the winter time you got to slow down. So you speed up in the spring, speed up in the summer. I've caught them working it fast in the dead of winter when it's freezing cold. <laughs> but uh, I think you kind of let the fish dictate what they want. You can work it uh, fast one cast, maybe not work it fast the next cast. Or you can uh, basically, the way I do it, in my mind's eye, I think, uh, what does a wounded mullet look like in the water? Think about what they look like. They swim differently than all the other fish out there around them. When you're throwing in a big pile of bait, you want your fish to look different than all that bait that's out there that's healthy. You want it to look like it's, uh, there's something wrong with it. 
So you want to throw it out there and wobble it around like it's struggling to survive, mm-hmm. then maybe hesitate for a second, maybe pick your rod tip up and wait for that thump. And then uh, that's that's a thrill. Just that big, big, hard thump, or you see them eat it on the surface at the same time you feel the thump, and they come, come out of the water shaking their head, blowing water mm-hmm. everywhere. That, that's a blast. And just basically I throw it until I figure out the, the way. But, but the easy way to remember is kind of work it like you're working a topwater. Walk the dog with it and then hesitate. And almost all your strikes are going to come whenever you – Whenever you hesitate, because the, the, the trout, what they're doing is they're, they're trained on that bait. And as soon as that bait hesitates, it's just nature's way of taking the, the weak out of the, you know, yeah. out of nature. If the fish stops and hesitates there, the trout's going to hammer it. The trout's not going to get, especially in the wintertime. In the wintertime, if the fish is moving fast, uh, they kind of wait until they stop. And as soon as they stop, that's when they're going to, that's why you, all the time when you're wiggling, you pick your rod tip up, that's when you feel the thump, because that's when you hesitate. So basically, that's kind of what I do. I pop, 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 raise my rod tip and hesitate, but I hardly ever come up uh, to 12 o'clock. If you come up to 12 o'clock and the fish thumps it, then you got to reel the slack out mm-hmm. of them to set your hook. Now, if you come up to 10 o'clock and they, they eat it, now, not, now if you're real, real good, you're able to pick it up that high, and when you feel them thump, they reel the slack out. But you take a lot of practice to do that, and a lot of guys will, will do it that way. Yeah. But it, that's basically what I, what I do. I work the corky. I let the fish figure out what they want, and that's how I work it. And so does that actually tie into the slogan of the original packaging, which is the choice of the fish? Yeah, that that is actually a Bubba Silver. Is it really? Yes, it is, yeah. He he had a lot of good ideas, and and what Bruce is saying is exactly what Wallace told me one time. He said he caught a little trout on the carkey, and he kind of wounded it. And he threw it out there, and this old carkey's coming up, and he's sliding back down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys says, you know, what's wrong with your carkey? I said, what? He said, well, it's got a hesitation, a little tail drop. And I used to tell him that story, and it went right in one end and out the other. But I used to raise guppies with my uh, kids. And mm-hmm. if you see, uh, if you ever raise guppies and you know one that's dying, he wiggles to the top, and then he slides backwards. And that's how Bruce was saying. That's exactly that turns their say, ah, oh, that's not going to run away. I'm going to get that guy. Yeah, because of I mean, easy meal. Yep. Yeah, we see greyhound and yeah, we see greyhound and mullet, and like, okay, that that's, that fish is right. a lot different from just the lazily jumping yep, mullet. That's right. So there's there's some definite instinct. Yes, uh, just like people say, how do you read water? I mean, there's mullet everywhere. How do I know where to? You know, where to cast, there's there's rafts and rafts of bait from here to Timbuktu. Where do you fish? Well, you, if you can read the water right, you can look at the bait, and you can decide where to go and where to cast. So, uh, it was actually Mike Bossy from down south Flores. He actually shared a, a really awesome story uh, to that point, and that was just obviously being attuned to the water, not fishing spots but fishing conditions. But then aside from that, and then Jay Watkins actually echoed that as well, is like when you're running, like be observant. And so in Bossy's particular story, he was uh, running down, I can't remember where, but he to the point where like all of a sudden they saw a couple of mullet on a bank. Basically, as they were jumping, they were jumping in circles. Like they were jumping. And then as they're like the, the series of jumps were kind of going in a circle. He's like, okay, that mullet's not lazily jumping. Yeah. jumping. He's doing something to get away and he's basically surrounded right now. And so he's 
fending for his life. But that's the thing about the Corky is, at least for me, and I've, I've told uh, Jonathan this, who's listening to the podcast, like right next to us, brother. <laughs> Big shout out. Uh, but, I mean, that's why it is at least my favorite bait, you know, for targeting big fish. And because you can fish it fast, you can fish it slow, you can fish it shallow, you can fish it deep, you know, kind of echoing Mike McBride in that respect. But that's why I love it. And uh, it's so manipulative. You can – it's it's the ultimate trout fishing lure, sir. You've created the ultimate trout fishing lure, and I'm looking at you, and it's amazing to me. Well, I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. No, We're I'm turning sorry. it over to Steve Brown, so um, – He's over in, um, I guess you call it Pearland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I got you. But Bruce, I mean, for as a as still an active guide and a guide who's been been at it for a long time, I mean, what what are your um, what are what are some things that you want to kind of leave to other guides in the industry or other fishermen that are still ate up about trout fishing like we are? Well, the thing I'd like to say about. Uh, uh, the one thing about our, our, our fishery here on, on Big Lake, I think it will come back. I know everybody's kind of down the dumps because uh, our big fish seem to uh, disappear, and that everybody's saying it's uh, there's one reason, or and I think it's a, a variety of reasons. It's not just one reason. I know we've had all the freshwater runoff, and a lot of our fish have probably left the estuary and went out to the to the beachfront of the Gulf and, and out to the short rigs. I know uh, uh, there's there's there were some big ones out there the past couple of years that normally don't go out there. And I think they went out there because they were, they were forced out because they couldn't tolerate all the fresh water. And, uh, in the springtime, normally they return the last couple of years. I don't think they did return because we had another deluge, uh, uh, in the springtime when they do come back. Now this year we've had a, a drier year and, uh, it seems like we've had the best spring right now than we've had in years. Now, there's lots and lots of little fish, and they're out in the middle, and I really don't, uh, that's not my thing, but our big fish on the shorelines, uh, this spring, they, they are bigger than they were the last couple years, and, uh, you know, I think they run in cycles. I know uh, East Maddie, you know, I use that as a, a, a general rule of thumb because uh, there was a time when East Matagorda Bay, uh, it was hard to catch a fish there. And then uh, the past couple of years, it's hot as a firecracker. There's a lot of big fish there. And uh, so I kind of think maybe uh, uh, we're coming up on a, a time period when the big fish are going to return. Hopefully they do because that's, my, that's what I – I'm an addict. I'm addicted to big fish. Do you think, I mean, that's some sort of like um, personal responsibility, though, by the, by the anglers that fish Big well, Lake sure, of, of taking care of their resources? Of course. That's, uh, that's another thing that's going on here. I know the uh, – Louisiana Parks and Wildlife are, are talking about changing our limits. Uh, there's so many guides here that they think they won't be able to make a living if they cut our limits down because they like to catch just a, a big pile of fish every time they go out. Well, see, that's probably the, the one reason. Because used to the pile of fish used to consist of four and five pounders. And then it got to where the pile of fish were three pounders. And now uh, the big piles of fish are not near as big as they were because there's there's well th- there's a lot of fish out there yeah. and that's a good thing but when you start taking out you know big piles of fish that are all four and five pounders for five years in a row i when i was young and dumb i used to think there's no way in the world you could out uh, remove all these fish out of the estuary with a rod and reel well i was i was dead wrong because you can uh big lake here uh 
about seven or eight years after they stopped the gill nets is when the, the big fish showed up here. Now, people can think I'm dumb, but I'm thinking that the recreational fisherman is taking out almost as many fish as those gill nets did. And when you take out that many fish out of an estuary, and I know uh, uh, you just don't have as many big ones, especially when you take out the, you know, the, the bigger ones, the four and five pounders are the ones that turned into our eight, nine pounders. Now there's lots of places that you used to be able to go and uh, catch those big fish. Uh, they're not there anymore. They're just not. Now there are some places where you can go if you know where to go and catch some. And uh, a lot of people catch them or keeping their mouth shut because they just don't want people to run over them. And I don't advertise them like I used to because uh, you get, but I still do every now and then. But there, there's still some big fish around. But, uh, you know, just need to be more conservation-minded and start letting the, the, the big ones go instead of uh, want to throw them up on the deck and everybody look at them. That's, that that's went on here for, oh, the last uh, seven or eight years. But anyway, just keep what you need. You don't need... Uh, I mean, who can eat 60 fish? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people put them in the freezers and they go get freezer burnt. They turn them loose. Yeah. No, for sure. And that's, I mean, ultimately the the goal in terms of a long, the longevity of a resource. But sure. then aside from that, it just gets better, right? Hopefully, is if you take kind of what you need and release the rest and things of that nature. And yeah. so that's, it's awesome to hear you say that as a, as a, profound guide in this industry particularly here in the southwest side of of our of my home state you know kind of preaching that message and so hopefully for the younger guides out there listening i mean you can be a successful guide you can be for lack of better terms and you're gonna probably punch me after this podcast but you're a legend you know both know of you oh my that. god but i don't know about that now. i know i know but still and i say that to every well I said, let me phrase it to like jay mcbride and doc weiss and those in Doc Wright. Oh yeah, uh, you know those guys. I mean, y'all are y'all are in that same group. We we shared a lot of names today, right? And it was amazing to me to listen to the Trout Masters lineup of teams that were fishing, right? Cliff a while Webb. ago, when uh, Paul talked about uh, Mark Holt, Mark Holt, uh, McTrout or McBride, yeah, McBride used to fish uh, uh, Upper Galveston Bay. Back in those days, we call him McTrout, <laughs> but. Uh, he he is probably one of the best fishermen I know. No kidding. Yeah, Mook Trout, uh, Jay Watkins, David Rousey, David Rousey. Yeah. All those people you yeah. miss you Octa, mentioned are, yeah. are Octay Bashi yeah. and yeah. John Gill, Leroy yeah, Navarro. Uh, Just keep going. Chad. What's crazy though Petrick, is like y'all. All those guys. And we were talking about Legend Series with Chad Petterick and and his. And first off, I I totally missed that. But congratulations, Mr. Paul, and your. Uh, induction into the legends hall of fame well yeah what was that like what was that <clears throat> well like? i met a lot of the old fishermen yeah. we had a lot of them come up it was very nice yes kind of surprised but uh met a lot of the the boskies and you name them were up there showing a lot of respect yep. right that's yep. cool very good that's awesome but yeah i mean just the tremendous names in that lineup oh I mean, yeah there's so some crazy. awesome fishermen on oh, the texas coast yeah that's i learned awesome. from a lot of them i listened to all of them Mike Williams is probably one of the first I listened to. Uh, he guides out of, uh, matter of fact, I've been to Mike's seminars uh, uh, back when I was a fireman, listened to uh, Jay Watkins, who's mm -hmm. probably one of the uh, 
he's got more knowledge than anybody on the whole Texas Gulf Coast, I think. He's he's a he's he's a legend. Yeah. That's a legend. Jade Watkins. Yeah. It, and Cliff Webb, you talked about him earlier. Yeah. Uh, all those guys down there south, all those big name guys. And that's the insane part about doing this podcast is the fact that I've actually had a chance to like literally share stories or listen to stories that y'all have shared uh, over the course of the season of podcasts because this is actually the last of season one I mean y'all are the capstone of season one and I wanted to save it uh, and I'm going to call it the pinnacle of, of trout fishing because you guys are are kind of at that at that echelon and, and I mean obviously you know Mr. Paul Brown and but for all those who've used the Corky in their life, I've shared with you the Dirty 30 and the Trophy Trout Citation numbers. Uh, from the, the creator of the bait, what do you want to share for those folks who've been so loyal and, and have used your lures for decades in, in our world? Well, the first thing is the bait was resonated in Texas although I'm in Louisiana now, thanks to Bruce, but mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the bait is a Texas bait, and it was built by the Texas fishermen, or we wouldn't have a carkey, because it takes more than one idea to make a fishing lure like this. Yes, sir. And I just want to thank the, the, the people that came by the shop and, uh, and let me know, you know what they needed and had faith in our bait. Are you aware of, like, the legacy you've left? I mean, are you... Well, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I don't well, think he is. <laughs> it, uh, just judging by what he's done by your, I know by your body posture. I mean, in 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 terms of like the biggest fan over here, I'm like asking for autographs and taking pictures. There, sir, I mean that like you've made that that sort of indelible mark on on our world, you know. And so again, I want to thank you, you know, for that. But you know, as one just one again, thank you for invite me into your to your house like well, you're sitting quite back welcome. here and just doing this <laughs> yeah. i mean do you take a like a tremendous sense of pride knowing that like all these people have had like literally lifelong memories so that's what we teach or i say teach but like that's what we talk about a lot with speckled truth is like this comparison of you know an appreciation for a fish and a pursuit and and honestly like big trout purist have this tremendous connection with targeting these big fish and like they they understand them you know and so it, like for me personally like I can remember distinctly every single facet of life during that time of when that big fish ate and I landed it right and so uh do you take a tremendous sense of pride like knowing that you've maybe given an angler that experience and that memory actually uh, I think in my respect is that I can take a young man riding up on a bicycle and I'll give him a handful of shrimp tails mm -hmm. and like the story I told you and they come back in a car and I've caught them into the, not that they're going to catch the big fish, right. but they're in the uh, fishing, uh, in, in, yeah, in, in, our, the world, yeah. in our world of efficiency. And I told Steve this, I said, Steve, you may make money out of this, but let me tell you the best thing I have out of this business is the people. I have more people, and I don't remember all their names, but it's the friends you make mm -hmm. in this business. And that that's the plus for me. Yeah. That lore has taken on really a life of its own to some extent. You know, it's it's become a cult 
like following. Uh, oh yes, that, it's it's insane. Well, the, the reason that is because of the many people that have the influence on that bait. See, it wasn't one person. <clears throat> Actually, you know, there was the like Bubba Silver's boy Jim. Yeah was the first one that told me, but he was not the designer of the bait. And I wasn't complete designer. I had ideas, but it was influenced by so many other people, see. So let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, Again, at the end of season one, it's been an amazing journey. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the Speckle Truth podcast, season one. What a place to end it, right, In, in terms of that. And that is sitting under here at Mr. Paul Brown's house, talking about Corky's and Big Trout. I want to just thank everyone who's listened to the Speckle Truth Podcast. Again, uh, we can't do it without our sponsors, you know, from Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and Mossy Oak Fishing. And uh, we, again, really appreciate the support of the podcast. We really, really do. And I always want to leave you guys with this, all of our listeners with this, and that is take what you need, release the rest. God bless. God bless.